This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture that was read earlier came from the gospel according to Matthew. The reading came from the fifth chapter and the verses were the 17th through to the 20th verses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by all means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Actress Lori Laughlin and her husband, fashion designer Massimo Giannulli, were among 50 people charged with conspiracy to commit mail and honest services fraud. The couple were also charged with money laundering offenses and eventually pleaded guilty to paying, get this, $500,000 in bribes to have their daughters labeled as recruits to the University of South Carolina's boating crew team even though neither daughter participated in the sport. Laughlin and Giannulli fought the allegations for months before finally admitting to participating in the scheme. The judge then ordered Laughlin to serve two months in prison, pay a $150,000 fine, as well as to serve 100 hours of community service for her role in the scheme. Her husband was handed a five-month sentence and ordered to pay a $250,000 fine as well as to serve 250 hours of community service. It was clear in this case that the issue was not about their ability to pay the tuition for their children because they clearly had the money to do so, but instead, the issue was their ability to have their daughters admitted to a school that they were not qualified to attend. In our nation, and in other nations as well, the rich are able to buy their underachieving children's way into the most elite universities with massive tax-deductible donations. For example, it is widely reported that New Jersey and real estate developer Charles Kushner had pledged $2.5 million 
to Harvard University in 1998, not long before his son Jared was admitted to the prestigious Ivy League school. So depending on your status, your wealth, your zip code, you name it, our society seems to have set conditions on what it takes for some people to get ahead. Yes, sir. Well, today I want to talk a bit about access. And we'll do so in a message I have titled, The Price of Admission. The Price of Admission. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you now, Lord, for the preaching moment. Thank you for a worship service that was effervescent and vibrant and spirit-filled and even in time solemn and melancholy. Thank you that we were able to express our full emotions of where we are, for it is through our emotions and our feelings that we're connected to each other, but also how we're connected to you. So now, Lord, we are vulnerable. So speak to us. Speak to us a word, Lord, that we can hear even in the midst of our vulnerabilities. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you may not know this, but I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. But the roots of the phrase being born with a silver spoon in your mouth date back to the early 1500s. Historically wealthy families were usually the ones who owned silverware, knives and forks and spoons and as a sign of their wealth and their status. And now whenever children were born into these wealthy families, it was common and a custom for them to gift the family with a silver spoon at the time of the child's christenings or dedications. It was a privilege and as a result, the term born with a silver spoon in your mouth meant that you were someone of high status. So even though I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth, I was, however, born with talents and abilities, gifts that were bestowed upon me by my heavenly Father, creator of all that is both seen and unseen, yes, and who blew the breath of life into my nostrils, thereby making me a living soul so that I could reflect his goodness and his benevolence in a world that would reject him. So even though I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth, I was born with God's spirit in my soul. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But despite all of that, I, like many of you here today, have had to journey through life, taking advantage of some of life's opportunities as they come. Some of those opportunities came because we had a mother or a grandmother, a father or a grandfather that worked hard, sometimes at the risk of their own livelihood, to make sure that even though they could not give us a silver spoon, they gave us whatever they had. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For while silver was out of their league, they gave us plastic or wooden spoons yeah. that they borrowed and paid for with their blood, sweat, and tears. It was the best they could give, and we are all the better for it, and we are grateful. Yes. That kind of spoon brought many of us to earn the first college degrees yes. in our families, yes, sir. Yes. or employment 
at some prestigious firm or simply doing just a little bit better than our parents did. The point is, you got to where you are today and you have what you enjoy today and you have access to opportunities that were otherwise closed to you today, not because you were so talented and so great, which you are, but because someone paid for you with their blood, sweat, and their tears, and you made it. Now, so far in this message, I've been alluding to some kind of access to which people are either qualified for or disqualified from. And the determining factor between those who are in and those who are out is what we call a standard. Standards, for the most part, are what helps others determine whether or not you measure up or meet the bar required for access or acceptance. In other words, a standard is a level of quality or attainment that is used to determine whether someone is in or someone is out. To make it quite plain, a standard is what sets you apart. Now there are many things that require some kind of standard or way of determining who should be in or who should be excluded. For example, the University of South Carolina and Harvard both have an academic standard. Now because these schools are considered extremely prestigious, they receive hundreds if not thousands of applications for entry and as a rule, they want to accept only those students who they believe will most likely matriculate successfully. They are handpicking who is in and who is out. But while that may be their hope to pick the best students, they are also a profit-making institution. And so they have opportunities to modify the standards because they were the ones that set the standards yes, in the first place. And when the standards are not met, we have interlopers such as Lori Laughlin, her husband Massimo, and Jared Kushner. You see, when you are the one to make the rules, then you are the one that is qualified to modify those rules. Let me say that again. When you are the one to make the rules, then you are the only one that is qualified to modify those rules. So college admission has a few standards. They have the wealth standard. Unless you have the money and you can afford to go, you won't be admitted. They have the connections or legacy standard. Unless you have the right connections, you won't be admitted. Then there is the academic standard. Unless you have the right grades and the right educational accomplishments, you won't be admitted. The number four, the athletic standard. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The athletic standard is unless you have the right talent, you can jump high and you can run fast. Unless you have the right athletic standard, you won't be admitted. And last, but certainly not least, the fifth is the quota. You see, unless you are the right disenfranchised minority group, you won't be admitted. And this is what necessitates affirmative action and diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Are you tracking with me? So you've got these five standards that anyone at any point in time can modify to allow you to get access admission. 
Now, depending on the institution that you are trying to get into, you may need at least two of the five to be admitted. And the more you have, especially if you hit all five, then the greater the chances you have to get in. You see, you can get in with one or two, but if you hit all five, you're almost guaranteed to be in. If you got the money, if you got connections, if you got the right grades, if you are athletic and can play ball and you are a minority group, listen to me. You don't even have to apply. They'll find you. Come on, preacher. Preach it, preacher. To make it plain, you're black, you're good looking, you can play ball, you got some educational skills, you in. You meet all the standards. Now, to be honest, most rich people, their kids, are not always strong academically. Amen. Not always the most athletic. And since they are rich, they are usually not black. And they don't fit neatly into any box, so they can't make quotas. So they rely on the first two, and that is their money and their connections. This is why Lori and her husband and Jared could find millions of dollars to get into these schools, especially when their children were not qualified. These children benefited because their parents paid the price of admission. Now, I'm not knocking anybody who rich. I'm just saying, because if I had it like that, trust me. <laughs> I'm just saying. But guess what, my brothers and sisters? Colleges aren't the only ones and only institutions with standards. God has a standard. Let's take another look at our text, see what we can learn today. Verse 17 begins by saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking. And in this brief excerpt that I just read, Jesus is actually sitting on the side of a mountain. And as he sat there, his disciples came to him. And so he began to teach them what you and I know to be the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon, you know how it begins. It begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, etc., etc., etc. And he gets to the point where Jesus is now in this sermon talking to them about the Old Testament and how they are to understand the Old Testament in relation to what he is telling them and what they see him doing day after day. Jesus is making the connection between what he is doing and the Old Testament. You see, you all, what you all need to understand is that the Old Testament from Genesis 
all the way to Deuteronomy, the part we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You see, the first five books of the Bible and other books such as Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these other books, they all make up the laws and the prophets, the writings that the people had. And that was their instructions for how they were to live daily. They didn't have like we have it today. And even though they had the laws and the prophets, they spent most of their times learning from the Pharisees and the scribes, who, by the way, spent their whole lives studying those scriptures. They knew the scriptures upside down, inside out, roundabout. They knew everything. And when the Bible talks about every jot and tittle, it's actually talking about the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's an alphabet called Tav. It looks like N, but it has a little tail on the end. The little tail on the end is called the tittle. So what Jesus was saying when he said every jot and tittle means that up to even the little tail on the T has to be fulfilled. It's like saying, you know how we talk, you, you cross every T and you dot every? Ah. Everything has to be fulfilled. That's what Jesus is telling these people. And these Pharisees, they studied the scriptures. They know it. And when they speak, they speak with authority because they know the word. It's like you coming to hear sermons Sunday after Sunday in this church because you trust that I have studied the scriptures so you depend on my guidance so that, you know what, you might not necessarily have the time to study as much. So you come hoping that pastor would have studied enough to help me understand this book because it's a lot to read and I don't always have the time to hear God for myself. I'm just saying. My point is the Pharisees knew the laws and the prophets and the people trusted their guidance. So now here comes Jesus with new teachings, new rules, even a whole new attitude and way of looking at the Old Testament. And the disciples were now confused. They were confused. For example, Jesus says things like, and you know it, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. Did Jesus not say that? Then he goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to the judgment. How about this one? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery in their hearts. Let me give you one more. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Everywhere that Jesus begins by saying, you have heard that it was said. Every time Jesus utters those words, you have heard that it was said, it was a direct quote from the Old Testament. And the disciples heard these sayings from even the Pharisees. They know it. You know, you read the Old Testament, it talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They know it. Jesus says, you know it. You have heard it. And if Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, he's quoting from the standard that God gave to his people. God gave his people a standard. <laughs> How then can Jesus take it upon himself to turn around now 
and say to all of them and to us, but I tell you. <laughs> it's in the text. <laughs> let me, let, just in case you missed it, let me read Matthew 5, 38 and 39 again. And listen carefully. You have heard that it was said, Old Testament, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Is Jesus out of his yeah. cotton-picking mind? Is Jesus really challenging God's authority, God's standard? Is that what Jesus is doing? Because of the Old Testament, which is our Bible, our scriptures that has passed from Moses all the way through to where Jesus is sitting on the side of a mountain. These disciples, all they know was what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law has been teaching them. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Are you understanding what I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters? Jesus is claiming an authority that, wait a second, are you able to challenge the scriptures? How would you feel if, if I say to you, the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and then I come in here on a Sunday morning and say, but I tell you, kill anybody who bothers you. It's a problem. Brothers and sisters, the question I'm asking, is Jesus really challenging God's standard and God's authority? My brothers and my sisters, I say this with all authority that I know from how God has ordained me for this moment. The answer to that question is no. But it seems like a contradiction, Pastor. No. Recall what I told you earlier when we were talking about standards for admission to these prestigious universities. Mm -hmm. Remember what I told you? When you are the one to make the rules, then you are the only one qualified to modify those rules. Did I not say that? You see, Jesus was not challenging God's standards or even God's authority. Jesus is God. And not only is he God, he is God's standard. And he is God's authority. Remember what John said in his book, in the first chapter? John said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth into the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you jump down to verse 14, and here's what it says. And the Word, that same Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, that same word, John says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father. We saw 
him. We saw the word. He walked. He talked. And in this case, he's sitting on the side of a mountain and he's saying to the disciples, brothers, you have heard it said, but I was from the beginning. I was there. I made the standard. But I say now, this is how you want to live. You see, <laughs> Jesus was not challenging the standard. He's saying, I am the standard. I am the standard. So now that we understand this, we can now understand what Jesus was actually telling his disciples on the side of the mountain. Let's look again at the text. I just love this. He said this. Look, chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what he said. After everything I just told you, this is what Jesus said. So you know I'm telling the truth. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Said another way, do not think that I have come to do away with the standard. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. God doesn't change. If he says eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that's what he means. So Jesus being the standard, oh hallelujah, gave his eye and gave his tooth. He paid the price. Yeah. He's the standard. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. That's the standard. So Jesus, the standard, died. He paid it. That's the point. The Old Testament is the entire story of the pre-incarnate Christ. It is a story about Jesus and what he would do to reconcile us back to God after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. I hope you understand the gospel. And Jesus, as Jesus spoke and taught and performed miracles, he was fulfilling every jot and tittle. Every rule, every guideline, every standard, he was filling it bit by bit. When the Bible in the Old Testament says Messiah is going to come riding on the foal of a donkey, Jesus rode on a donkey. He was fulfilling every single word in the Old Testament. This is why we say that the Old Testament is Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed. Jesus says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. He's the standard. <laughs> so this makes sense when Jesus now says to the disciples, he says, for truly I tell you, heaven and earth will disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. <laughs> Jesus is saying that every single word in the Old Testament must and will be fulfilled before anyone can enter into the kingdom. Furthermore, he wants to make sure that we know that the Old Testament teachings, everything in the Old Testament matters. So you know how everybody, and I'm, and I'm digressing here for a moment, everybody says, well, in the Old Testament in Leviticus, Y'all know, it says you can't do this and you can't do that. Well, it does say this and it does say that. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Only for those who will call on his name. 
So Jesus is telling us that everything that is taught in the Old Testament mattered. And they mattered during the time of Moses. They mattered during the time of Jesus. And they matter even today. And by making the statement, the way that he's making it, Jesus is not mincing his words, nor is he stuttering. Jesus is playing saying, no one, none will enter. That's what it says. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how connected you may think you are. It doesn't matter how smart you think you are. It doesn't matter how high you can jump or how fast you can run. It doesn't matter what quotas you meet or how good you may think you are. Anyone, watch this, who sets aside one of the least of these teachings and commands will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches everything you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is to say, even for preachers like me, I can't only preach the parts of the Bible that you like or that I like. We have to preach all of it. Every jot, every tittle, every T that is crossed, every I that is dotted in season and out of season. Yes, I have to preach salvation, but I also have to preach damnation. All of it. Furthermore, for this is where the message gets even more painful. Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, unless you are, let me make this really plain, unless you are more righteous than Billy Graham, than T.D. Jakes, than Joel Osteen, than Creflo Dollar, than Jeremiah Wright, than Gandhi, than Mother Teresa, than Bishop Curry, Desmond Tutu, than Nelson Mandela, than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., than Pope Francis, than, <laughs> than, than, than Nicodemus, than Joshua, than Aaron, than Moses, than Deborah, than David, than Ruth, than Naomi, than even the Virgin Mary, all combined into one, you will certainly not be entering the kingdom of heaven. Put everybody, put even me, all of us, lump us on, and claim the righteousness of everyone, you ain't going to see the kingdom of heaven. That's real talk. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the point. You and me and all of these people I've named are not good enough and we're not qualified for admission. None of us. And I know that I don't have to convince you of all of this. You already know it for yourselves. You know you're not perfect. And you know that as much as I love to read and teach the scriptures, I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I am far from perfect. For the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All. And I know you all felt sad when I said Mother Teresa. All. I could feel it. All. Whichever preacher you like, all. But there is good news. There's good news. There's good news. And it's contained in our text in verse 17 that we've been reading all this time, Tony. It's in verse 17. This is what it says. 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, that's the piece in the text that we must hold on to. I've come to fulfill them. See, Jesus would fulfill the law and the prophets perfectly and fully when he paid all the costs and died on that rugged cross. That was the price of admission and he paid the tuition that matters. Jesus made the connection and he did it since he was the only one that could. He set the standards so he fulfilled the standards and by fulfilling all of the standards, all of the conditions, all of the qualifications so perfectly he made it possible that anyone and everyone could find and be admitted. It didn't matter how poor you are. It didn't matter how disconnected you are. It doesn't matter how intellectually challenged you are. It doesn't matter how slow you are or how much you can't jump. It doesn't matter what quota you meet or you don't meet. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Jesus met all of the conditions and all of the qualifications. He met the wealth requirements. He met the academic requirements. He met the athletic requirements. He met all of the quotas. He met it. So, my brothers and my sisters, you don't have to worry about meeting nor surpassing the righteousness of all of the Pharisees and all of the people that I named. You don't have to worry about trying to be better than anybody in this world. You don't have to try to measure yourself up against anybody who you think is good or is going to heaven. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in his name and his finished work and you will be given admission. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross and he paid your admission. Jesus paid the price of admission to the kingdom. And I came to tell you that if you believe, your discipleship loan has been forgiven. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. Amen.